You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The global HIV-AIDS crisis has led to another challenging crisis, a critical shortage of healthcare workers. According to the World Health Organization, Africa has been hardest hit by the healthcare crisis, bearing 24% of the global burden of disease, though it has only 3% of the healthcare workforce and 1% of the world's financial resources. Join us for a discussion about the challenges of the upscale and task shifting in the face of the HIV epidemic. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Washington, D.C., is my guest, Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen. Dr. Mullen is the Murdoch Head Professor of Medicine and Health Policy at the George Washington University School of Public Health and Professor of Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Mullen. Nice to be here, Dr. Margolin. Dr. Mullen, before we discuss what many countries are doing to address their critical shortages of healthcare workers, let's talk a moment about the unique nature of the HIV AIDS crisis and the demands it places on the healthcare workforce. Well, HIV is undoubtedly the most monumental uh, public health task the world has ever faced. It is different than, say, smallpox, which required, once we had an instrument to treat it, a vaccine one injection per patient at a set point in time, and you could essentially cure the epidemic or stop, eliminate smallpox. Even tuberculosis with directly observed therapy requires somewhat more labor intensivity with medications being given on a regular basis by a health worker, a community worker who observes the appropriate administration of the medication. But HIV-AIDS requires that once therapy is started, that it be continued for a lifetime. And it's complicated therapy with many intercurrent problems that require medical monitoring and supervision of some level, again, for a lifetime, so that the uh, personnel implications of treating HIV go way beyond the uh, therapeutic implications, the therapeutic issues, which have been brilliantly countered in the sense that we have effective antiretrovirals, that will maintain life. Uh, We have uh, effective testing and counseling strategies, but uh, and we now have antiretrovirals at a level that they are arguably, with international help, affordable in even the poorest of countries. But once all that is accomplished and the drugs are delivered to a facility, the question of how do you implement and maintain a program of delivery uh, is a huge personnel problem starting with physicians and nurses, but on down through community health workers and educated patients and family members. This is a, an undertaking, the scope of which the world has never seen, has never undertaken. And yet we're at the brink of trying to do that in some of the poorest and least resource-blessed countries in the world. Let's turn now then to discussing what some countries are doing to address the health workforce shortage. If the promise of better income and opportunity is what drives this exodus of physicians to New York or London, what can be done to curtail it? You asked the, the proper question, and this is a very tough question. You're starting with countries whose economies are poor, many of whom have been uh, the subject of either war, civil strife, natural disaster, drought, etc., and both the economies and the medical economies of those countries are in very poor shape. Clearly, doctors would be happier, more content, less inclined to emigrate, as would nurses and others, 
if conditions were better. Conditions starting with reimbursement, pay, working conditions, opportunity for advancement, opportunity for postgraduate training. If we could parachute these in, we could change or help change the environment very quickly. The point is you can't simply order up a better economy. You can't simply uh, order up uh, salary increases for everybody in the country or all healthcare personnel in the country, although that has been uh, discussed and even tried in some places with some very complicated uh, uh, outcomes. But in principle, anyway, more pay would be helpful or better reimbursement. But in situations where the vast majority of the health workforce is employed by the government, and in countries, uh, poor countries, there's a very, very small private sector, so perforce everybody or most everybody is employed by the government. Those governments are in bad shape. And further, they have World Bank and International Monetary Fund strictures on them because of their debtor status, which are called structural reforms, which require that they have strict limitations on payments made by the civil service. Doctors and nurses are in the civil service, and they're caught in this. So even if the governments have resources they'd like to spend on stabilizing the medical workforce, they very often can't. That is a treatable problem that many policymakers are now working on. But beyond that, there are other things that can be done. And many countries are moving cleverly, I think, to try to implement these. In West Africa, for instance, in Ghana, they have instituted a Ghana College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is a postgraduate certification program, which does provide for postgraduate training uh, that is not as extensive as Western postgraduate training, not even as extensive as a previous existing uh, West African College of Physicians and Surgeons, but it's more keyed to country needs and has been quite successful in um, attracting physicians into postgraduate training and giving them stronger roots in their country. There have been other kinds of benefits for health workers, such as in rural postings particularly, cars provided at low cost, uh, educational uh, benefits for children. And uh, recently in Tanzania, I learned of a program where houses are being given to rural medical officers, and if they stay for a set period of time, I believe it's five years, the property becomes theirs. The idea is to give them a stake in the community. So uh, some very game efforts are being undertaken to try to improve the environment and stabilize physician workforces by giving them uh, better benefits, all of which I think are very important, and all of them are, and there are many others, are uh, worthy of uh, support from international organizations. I think all of them will fail if we do not also uh, attenuate or turn down the huge vacuum that is created uh, by the markets in the United States and elsewhere for doctors uh, making the opportunities to leave the country so numerous and so easy. If we don't do that at the same time, the indigenous efforts will be, I think, overwhelmed by the economic suck of the uh, of the North and the West. Dr. Mullen, you have used the analogy of a leaky bucket to describe the loss of physicians from countries like Ghana. And in response to the leak, some of those countries have worked to improve the quality and capacity of their medical schools, increasing the numbers of physicians trained there. But as you put it, this is just building a bigger leaky bucket. Why aren't bigger and better training programs the solution? Well, the problem is that the political economy that's operative in the world is unchanged by medical education. Ghana and other countries are working hard to increase their number of graduates in medicine and other health professions. Uh, This is laudable and this is understandable. There are huge needs. But when you have something between 30 and 60 percent of your physicians leaving shortly after graduation, it's a a risky proposition and one that uh, I have full sympathy with and full respect for. I mean, this is 
very precious um, funds that uh, the, the, the countries such as Ghana are investing in the education of young people for the health sciences. But as long as the imbalance in economies, both medical economy and cash economy, are so variant between an African country, and Ghana is quite a stable and relatively prosperous one compared to many others, so long as the imbalances are so enormous, it is going to be hard for doctors and nurses and others to pass up the opportunity. As one Ghanaian physician told me, I can make in London in a month what I make in Ghana in a year. Uh, it's very hard to stay at home. So the premise, I think, on the part of medical education policymakers is that if they train more, more will stay, and they're also optimistic that their economy will improve over time and uh, that uh, the practice of medicine will become better remunerated. But um, it's, a, it's a gamble, and I think in the short run, nobody, including the policymakers in Ghana and other countries, uh, doubt that they will continue to lose large numbers and the actual analogy of leaky bucket was uh, told to me by a Ghanaian educator who said, you know, we are building a bigger leaky bucket and we're going to lose a lot of water from it. Mm. I want to make sure that we talk about a different strategy that is being used by some countries, and that's non-physician clinicians. Tell us about uh, the use of non-physician clinicians in some of these countries. Well, Africa has a long tradition, I was aware, in uh, in different uh, parts of Africa, and I think it's true elsewhere in the world, of health professionals trained at a level simply less uh, sophisticated than a physician, but more clinically oriented uh, than a nurse. Basically, it would be the zone that the physician assistant or nurse practitioner occupies in the United States. They're called in Africa variably clinical officers, health officers, uh, nurse clinicians, medical assistants, and so forth. I recently completed a study in 47 sub-Saharan African countries, and it turns out 25 of the countries have personnel who fit this category. They vary in name, of course, but also in scope of practice and numbers from country to country. But several of the countries, particularly former British colonies, uh, such as uh, Malawi, Kenya, there are many more mid-level practitioners, uh, clinical officers in this case, than there are physicians. So they have built systems that are enormously reliant on clinical officers seems like that would be a smart way to address the immigration problem. Is there any opposition to development of non, non-physician clinician programs? Uh, we indeed use the term non-physician clinician to capture them all. We think that's a, a good and neutral term. Uh, yes, there is opposition, and it comes, uh, I was going to say predictably, I don't know predictably, from both physicians and nurses in particular, who sense competition and are comfortable with the division of labor that exists now. And this is by no means all physicians and nurses or all physicians and nurses organizations. Within those countries? Within those countries. In Nigeria, for instance, there was an effort to develop this cadre of people some years ago. They were called community health extension workers, CHOOS. And uh, the medical establishment uh, fought it substantially, and eventually the program was abandoned not alone from the opposition of doctors, but they were very uncomfortable. And their their concerns are that people will get degrees and then pretend that they're doctors and uh, that there will be uh, inappropriate treatment and competition. Now, if you've got countries such as Nigeria that has 23 physicians per 100,000, again, compared to 280 per 100,000 in this country, you obviously have vast parts of the countryside where there are no doctors. Right. So uh, strategies that will develop personnel that have clinical skills that can be uh, developed arguably quicker and cheaper than doctors and arguably don't have the same kind of global markets so are more likely to stay at home 
we think is good policy. And uh, numbers of countries that do not have this level of work are now considering it, and countries that do have it are considering expanding. So I think there's a pretty uh, active future for the um, increase in non-physician clinicians in Africa, as frankly there's been in the United States where the nurse practitioner and physician assistant professions have blossomed and uh, moved rapidly into uh, major partners in the delivery of care uh, throughout the United States. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, the Murdoch Head Professor of Medicine and Health Policy at the George Washington University School of Public Health and Professor of Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Mullen. Thank you, Dr. Margolin. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.